Howdy, and welcome to the show. Gilbert's Code examines a legal issue and hits the highlights, so we all achieve the best results for our clients. I'm Miles Cooper, and with today's guest, Brian Bix, Cooper's attorney extraordinaire, we will be discussing the relationship between new lawyers and old lawyers and how best to have those work. That will include examining working with opposing counsel and taking into account how their different views, cultures, ages, and experiences can be both a benefit and a boon. Before we get into today's topic, a few words about Cooper's LLP. We at Cooper's are committed to thought leadership, developing the best talent, and honing skills through learning, practice, trial, and the relentless pursuit of justice for consumers. With lawyers licensed in California, Oregon, and Washington, we're available for a free strategic consultation on cases, and we accept referrals and trial co-counsel opportunities. For more information, visit our website at coopers.law or email us at podcast at coopers.law. Well, Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you again for having me. Always a pleasure. We started, and I feel like we should have hit record quite some time ago, going down the path of talking about the relationship between young lawyers and older lawyers. And in that regard, I'm referring to the experience that people bring to the table and different ways that people mentor, fail to mentor, or can engage with uh, younger lawyers. And I think that you bring a lot of wisdom to the table, given your background. And it may be helpful for people to understand a little bit about your background in doing that. I understand that you both served as a paralegal for some time before being an attorney, and you've also served as an attorney. So why don't you flesh that out a little bit so people can understand the experience that you bring to the table for this conversation? Sure. Before I went to law school, I got my undergrad degree and then I went ahead and did the plunge to law school. I ended up working at a public defender's office all three years of law school, graduated law school, and I ended up not passing the bar exam the first time. And I ended up working as paralegal for a few years while I took the bar exam until I passed it. And I eventually passed the bar exam and I am going to be hitting my one year anniversary of a license here this coming month. One of the things, and I probably like this because I worked in a firm in many different roles before I became a lawyer. And I feel that people who have done that oftentimes work with their coworkers in a different way, meaning they have a better understanding for the job. They sometimes are a little kinder. Have you had that experience? I have. I also have a different expectations of what I expect people under me to do and what I will ask them to do. I'll take it upon myself to try and send out a fax or to send out small emails. I try not to pawn smaller tasks off to a paralegal or an assistant that I can do in about five minutes. You've outlined your history in terms of being an attorney. Have you had experiences where people have been condescending to you? As a paralegal or as an attorney? I would say either. I've experienced both. When I was a paralegal, I have seen attorneys expect a quick response from me or that I don't quite understand what I'm talking about or talk down to me. When oftentimes, what I would probably wager is a paralegal is probably the one who's going to get the majority of things in an office done and push things forward. As an attorney, I've been talked down to by attorneys who have a significant more amount of experience than me, whether that's a managing partner, a named partner on a larger firm, or somebody who I recognize the name just out of pure volume. And they talk down and particularly don't think that they know what I'm talking about. When you 
have had that experience as an attorney. And I'm going to kind of highlight opposing counsel when opposing counsel has talked down to you. What tools have you adopted to be able to address that? The first thing is to understand that I shouldn't be taking any of it personally. Understand that, yes, I do have a lack of experience. It doesn't mean that I'm less intelligent or that I'm not able to get the job done. It's just this individual on the opposite side has been doing it longer than I have. Utilize my resources that I have. If I have something that I'm unsure about, and tap into the vast knowledge of my office and the experience that my office has and the attorneys that it has with all the years of experience that it has. But most importantly, it's just to listen. I have two ears and I have one mouth. I should be listening more, talking less. And more times than not, if I'm listening, I'm going to be hearing what the opposing attorney is saying. And I can take a deep breath think about how I'm going to respond and I can choose to not respond immediately and come back and reevaluate it at a later time. And that is a smarter decision than to have an instantaneous gut reaction and to just say something off the cuff or to give an instant reaction, which sometimes I think that an older attorney is looking for. Oh, I wish I had the wisdom you have when I was at your stage in your career. I think that there is a tendency in our profession to be reactive, you know, egos clash and the idea of waiting to respond, absorbing the information, then figuring out how to respond instead of just being reactive is incredibly wise and something that happens less frequently, particularly with the speed of communication. And by that, I mean emails, because it's not just the condescension oftentimes happens in written form as well as verbal and one can write that ripping email in response how do you handle your reactivity when somebody is sending you a written communication email in, in particular is interesting i have been on the back end of some not pleasant emails and i definitely have sent my fair share of emails that have had a little bit of a sting to them in a respectful manner and what i have found is whenever i get an email I can type a response out and then I'm going to get away from the email, step up, walk away, close out of it, save it as a draft. I'll go back and review it later on. And oftentimes what I find is after the second or the third review, I can take the stinginess level down a little bit. And I also ask myself, is this response necessary? Is this response going to move the conversation forward? And if it does not, do I need to send this? And if I don't need to send it, why am I doing it? Am I doing it because I want to be reactionary and because I don't like what they said? Or am I doing it because it's beneficial to the client? And then I would either hit discard or send. I remember being a young lawyer and back then I worked for a woman named Cynthia McGuinn and she would have me run any draft by her first. As I think through this, this actually predates me being a lawyer. I remember a letter being written seven or eight times. And back then I thought that the job of a effective advocate was to be snarky and acid tongued that, you know, that was the way, because that's at that era, there was a lot of that in the law. There was a lot of what I would call, you know, the bellowing walrus approach where you demonstrate 
your position through a little bit of your bellicosity. And in those rewrites, it would just be toned down, toned down, toned down, toned down, toned down until it did exactly what you're talking about. It's neat to see that you have that already built into your system. How do you think you arrived at that? Knowing that my parents listen to this podcast, (laughs) I have to give credit where credit is due. And it's honestly my mom and my dad. Granted, there are a lot of professionals that I have been mentored by and taken some large lessons and knowledge from. But uh, in my family, you know, the three things that you're not supposed to talk about at the dinner table are the three things that we always talk about at the dinner table. And um, we have some pretty hot debates. And my parents allowed me this environment to be able to handle a hotly contested conversation and also ask yourself, is this going to move the conversation forward? And you can sit there and beat on your chest about a point, but is it going to make you win the argument? If it is not, why are you moving it forward like that? And I'm sure that my dad would say that this is, you know, from his work experience and his growing. And my mom would say the same thing. And those lessons kind of matriculated down to me. And so, you know, I I love my folks and it's a big product of how I was raised, I think. Having not been raised in polite society, I have to ask, what are the three things I'm not supposed to speak about at the dinner table? Religion, sex, and politics. I can see why focusing on those would make for someone with a high level of emotional intelligence. Thank you. Do you give any consideration to your written communications as far as them being read by somebody other than the recipient, i.e. as an exhibit to a motion? Yes. Having been a paralegal and put together enough motions, I have seen my fair share of meet and confer emails that have been put as an exhibit. And boy, it is a bad look on you when you look snarky and it's an exhibit and it's being put in front of a judge. It is not a good image for you. And it makes the profession look really bad too, sometimes. I will also say, sometimes you do need to have a stingy email and sometimes you do need to hold people's feet to the fire. With age and experience probably comes wisdom. You need to be able to figure out when the time is to do that, when the time is not to do that, and how likely those emails are going to be blasted somewhere else. One of the views that was brought to my attention in terms of ways to consider an email is if this email was to be printed on the front page or this meeting and for a letter was to be printed on the front page of the local paper, how would you feel about having your name associated with it? That's a good way of looking at it. And I would also say any email that you send out, you should expect that it's going to be read by at least two or three other individuals before it gets to the person who you actually are sending it to. For example, I know that the majority of emails that we get in our office, if it's a service email, it's got three or four different recipients on it. And so not only is it going to be sent to me and it might be addressed to me and I might see it, three or four other people might as well. If I'm sending out an email and it's got a certain context, it might not be appropriate for everybody to see that context as well. You need to be cognizant of that. When that goes into the ego issue where people feel painted into a corner to have to respond, let me demonstrate my dominance to this young lawyer who has just sent me something that embarrasses me in front of my staff. In response to that, I also find sometimes that not responding actually gets a 
worse reaction out of the person who was looking for a reaction in the first place. I'm not giving them the attention that they're wanting. Don't feed the trolls. Works in uh, social media and it sometimes works in this profession as well. You talked about how you will set something aside and go back through and perhaps tone it down a little bit before you send it out. Have you heard the phrase fact neutral, remove spin or snark words to make it so that just the facts themselves are devastating to the other side? I have not heard it phrased that way, but I have been explained that process before. And I do try to utilize it sometimes. Sometimes I do have a tendency of adding a little bit of my own personal layer of and flavor of snark. And sometimes that does need to be removed. I love snark. It's unfortunately one of the pieces of humor that really appeals to some dark layer of me. Some of the best communications I have ever written have never been sent for precisely that reason. I'm going to switch gears a little bit and I'm going to ask you about whether you feel as a younger lawyer and put this in any category that you would like, whether as a younger lawyer or as a paralegal, you feel like you've been underestimated. Yes. Sometimes I feel that older attorneys do not think I may or may not know what I'm talking about. An example would be receiving subpoenas one day and I had a client who was involved in a motor vehicle accident and the subpoenas wanted all of her medical records. At this facility, they do not limit medical records that they send out. And so a carte blanche, any and all, that defense attorneys love to send out with attachment three on subpoenas would include records like your OBGYN records, clearly not relevant to an injury that was sustained in this motor vehicle accident. And this older attorney just thought that I was going to roll over and not fight it. He was a little shocked that I would send that five-page long meet and confer letter after I had attempted to informally resolve the problem. Then he was a little shocked that I would go as far as to go to an informal discovery referee and fight the issue. And he definitely underestimated the ability that I would put the time and the effort to go that far. And I think that after he realized that I would go that far, he had a little bit more respect for me. And I ended up resolving that case for just under the policy limits. So that was a feel-good moment. Do you feel it is important to follow through on the things that you say you're going to do in order to demonstrate something like that? Yes. Empty threats eventually will get caught out on the carpet. Oh, and likewise, making a threat that can't be followed through on would also be problematic. Very much so. Are you familiar with the golden rule? The golden rule of treat others how you would like to be treated? That was the one I was fishing for. Although... There is another one in the trial world. Are you familiar with that one? I am not. In the trial world, you are not allowed to ask a juror, what would you give if this happened to you? You can come close to that line. You can dance around it. But there are many cases that have come down to say just exactly where you can and can't do that. The golden rule, though, in terms of treating others the way you want to be treated is the way I wanted to go down that path. I'm guessing this is something that given what you described in your household, was a value that was taught to you? It was, yes. And how do you employ that when you are engaging with the other side? To give a little bit of context, it was very hard for me to get to where I am. As a student, schooling wasn't my strong point, And becoming a lawyer was a struggle. 
And as a working attorney in the profession, I want to raise that profession. I want to make sure that it is respected because you are put into a higher spot in society because you're supposed to represent people's interests and help them and defend them and protect them. And so when I'm interacting with other attorneys, I want to give off that feeling that we need to elevate ourselves, treat others with dignity, respect, civility, and try to promote that, especially in society right now, which I largely feel is not going in that direction. And if we really want to be leaders, we need to do that. And so I try to employ that, be respectful, have frank, honest, good conversations with other attorneys and build those relationships. I will add to it. So those are all the value reasons and ethical and moral reasons why one should follow the golden rule. I'm going to add to it the concept of the favor bank. And have you come across the favor bank? The favor bank is live and well. If you are a jackass to the other side, it will come back to bite you in the butt. And in that regard, if you refuse to grant an extension of time, if you are a scorched earth in terms of your engagement with them, your computer will crash just before a filing deadline. Your dog will eat your homework. There will be a time when you need to withdraw from that favor bank. And if you are the type of person who does not follow the golden rule, it will come home to roost. 100%. What's the saying? Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. There is going to be a time where something's going to happen. That is definitely true. Are there other things that you think people should know about engaging with less experienced counsel? Either someone in your shoes who's listening or someone who has more experience in terms of how they should approach that? I would say that don't demean a younger attorney because you think that they don't know what they're doing or that they don't know what they're talking about. I will put the extra time and the extra effort into something so that I am prepared. And I will spend weekend hours when a more seasoned attorney will probably spend 30 minutes reviewing a depot transcript. I will put the extra time and the effort in so that I don't look like I'm a fool. And that may go into me being more prepared and having a better understanding of the facts of the case. And I might be able to trip up your witness because I know the timeline better than you do. So I might be inexperienced, but I might be a little bit more hungrier than you. So I'm going to put the extra time and the effort in. Something else to think about too is you don't help the profession at all by treating younger, inexperienced lawyers who you are eventually going to hold and pass the torch off to and by treating them like they're dumb. You should, in a civil sense, help to elevate them because all you're going to do is help to elevate the profession and keep it alive and let it have a good reputation. And I think that those are some things that older attorneys tend to forget because they're too stuck in their head about the adversarial process where I need to win. And it doesn't matter if it's an attorney with 10 years or 10 months, a win is a win for me and it's going to make me feel better. Sometimes you're going to get a really good case and you're going to win no matter what. Other times you're going to get a case that you probably are going to be able to win because you have more experience and you can do everything that you need to do and strategically set yourself up to win. 
That being said, be civil and treat people with respect, knowing that at some point in time, you're going to pass the baton off to them. As I've gone through the decades of practice, I think there are cultural shifts in demographics. And one thing I would throw out there is don't hate somebody just because of their behavior. Recognize that their behavior may be driven by their environment. An older lawyer may have trained at a firm where this was how they did things. I think of lawyers who might feel it is necessary to demean or shame folks in front of other people. That was how they were brought up. They were trained out of fear as opposed to being trained out of love or compassion or ethics or civility. And you already said this earlier. If you internalize that, if you react to it as opposed to recognizing this is just an unfortunate side effect of the generation that they're from, it's far easier to engage with someone like that by not engaging, as you pointed out. The other piece that you brought up, and I will describe it as a generational concept of this being an adversarial process. It is an adversarial process in certain respects. However, one can play this game as a win-win game instead of a win-lose game. Here's what I mean by that. I think that the results that I started getting for my clients shifted exponentially once I recognized that this was a collaborative as opposed to an adversarial process. The other side is still an adversary, but we're collaborating with them to help them get the information they need to be able to get their carrier or their decision maker to pay what the case is worth. And if you engage with them as an adversary as opposed to a collaborator, you're going to have a different result than if you start thinking about what is it that they need? How can I get it to them? Do you have conversations with the other side like that? I literally just had a conversation with the other side like that regarding a case that I'm on not even two weeks ago. And it very much went exactly how you're describing. I was able to have a regular, cordial, polite conversation with the opposing attorney, set the groundwork for the direction that we see this case going, understand that he was going to be sending out some subpoenas, already discussed the limitations on the subpoenas, what to expect, and how we can work together to move this along forward. And I know he has his interests. He has his client that he has to represent. He also understands that I've got my client that I need to represent. And we could sit down and have a conversation very bluntly with, okay, this is where we're going. This is where we see things ending up happening. And let's start to work towards getting you the information you need so that you can take it back to your adjuster, write your reports after we've just sat down and had this conversation, and we can try and make some progress. I can either fight him and create roadblocks, scheduling conflicts, not make myself available, or I can help him out along the way, say, I'm not going to fight you on these limitations on these subpoenas. These are the facilities that my client went to. Hey, my client also went to this other facility. It was for medical treatment not related to this accident. I would prefer you not to subpoena them. I'm representing to you that it had nothing to do with this. If you do, let's have a conversation about it. And I have found that having those conversations with attorneys, one, I have a better discourse with that attorney. Two, he understands that I'm willing to 
in good faith, try to resolve a matter. And three, it's just more beneficial for the client. I'm spending less time wasted on frivolous arguments that are not going to benefit them. And it might make their case resolve faster, which then puts more money into their pocket faster, allowing them to close a bad incident in their history books and move on with their lives versus a lingering pimple that just never, ever goes away. I was about to say, I like that visual. I don't know that I like that visual, but it is a very descriptive visual. I probably could have been a little bit more artistic, but boil, lesion, ulcer. Abscess, thesaurus. Are we still describing that or insurance companies? Well, I think we're getting a little uncollaborative at this point. Okay. It's the snark. It's the snark, but it, it's not going to appear in a meet and confer at least. No, it would not. Just on a podcast. Also, I want to say your reputation follows you. And although there are a lot of lawyers, there are very small circles. Good lawyers surround themselves with other good lawyers. You will, in this community, see the same names reoccurring associated with the same names. And although young lawyers make mistakes, and I think older, more experienced attorneys understand that, and they don't look too drastically about that, your reputation will follow you. And it's really easy to make a mistake and for it to affect you for a long time. And it takes a very long time to recover from those mistakes. And so maybe think twice before you hit that send button because it might affect your reputation. And it's not just going to be something that is a quick turnaround. And when you're out looking for another job or you want something that's going to be a little bit more flexible, People know people and people are very quick to pull out their cell phone book and to call somebody and say, hey, can you tell me something about this guy? As a young lawyer, you really need to be aware of that and protect your reputation. There have been a few instances where I've been able to really display, I think, good choices. And I definitely have felt the consequences of making those good choices, knowing that other attorneys look at me in a little bit of a better light. And I think that I really got a lot of those insights from having good mentors as bosses when I was a paralegal and now as an attorney and seeing that atmosphere. And I think that that's something that people really need to to remind themselves too is there are a lot of attorneys. There are very few good attorneys and they tend to keep close contact with themselves. I sometimes say that this community is a high school that you never graduate from with all of the pros and cons that come with it. But you know who those people are and you know what reputation they have. The other piece is that it can take a very long time to build a reputation, but you can have it torn down in an instant. And the example that immediately comes to mind, there's a fabulous book called The Fall of the House of Zeus that follows Dickie Scruggs, his rise and fall who, if you don't know the name, is one of the lawyers who helped bring down Big Tobacco, made probably billions from that case, had a stellar career, and was one of the attorneys featured in a movie called The Insider. And during an incident in his office, an associate was wearing a wire, and he was caught on the wire instructing the associate on having a judge take a bribe. And... His name was taken off of a law school that he founded. His, he was disbarred. You can lose everything just with a moment of poor choice. Anything else you think we should cover? 
from one young lawyer, what I would just say is take a deep breath and recognize that you can be a little bit more confident in yourself. You're going to make mistakes, lean on your mentors, try and absorb as much information as you can and understand that, again, you're going to make mistakes and you're going to have to learn from them and your mentors were right there too. I know that I struggle with confidence and making the right decision. And I think that it's something that really needs to be a little bit more light shined on is have a little bit more faith in you. You made it through law school. You made it through the bar exam. Now you're sitting at this job. You clearly have the tools to do it. Have a little bit more faith in yourself. And what I'm hearing in my takeaway from this is an older lawyer is as someone who now engages in some mentoring is that public shaming of people is the best way to handle it. Is that, am I clear on this? Is that the takeaway? <laughs> no, that is not the takeaway. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brian, thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you for listening. Please email us at podcast at coopers.law with questions, comments, feedback, and suggestions on your successes and your failures in terms of dealing with difficult counsel, older counsel, younger counsel, counsel in your firm, counsel outside your firm. Like what you heard? Share us with a colleague and leave us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. To all of you doing justice out there, happy hunting. Happy hunting.